to Getting Legal With It, a podcast for Colorado young lawyers by Colorado young lawyers. I'm your host, Kevin Chang. For those listening to us for the first time, I'm a personal injury and criminal defense lawyer here in Colorado. I graduated from the University of Colorado Law School in 2014 and founded my practice, Cheney Galusian Howard LLC, a short time later. I'm a member of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, where I serve on its board, executive committee, and legislative committee. I also serve on the Colorado Bar Association's Board of Governors, the CBA Executive Committee, and the CBA Young Lawyers Division Executive Council. Finally, I'm a member of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar Association. If you're interested in learning more about any of these wonderful organizations, please feel free to shoot me an email at kevin at cghlawfirm.com. This podcast is created and sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you bi-weekly episodes with information that is both fun and informative for young lawyers. We have some awesome guests lined up and we are just getting started. If you like our podcast, please, please, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. With that, let's jump right in. Uh, Listeners, I'm really excited uh, for today's guest. We have our our first uh, member of the Colorado Supreme Court to uh, come on the podcast, and I'm really pleased to welcome uh, Justice Carlos Samuel. And he was appointed by Governor Hickenlooper to serve on the Colorado Supreme Court on July 2nd, 2018. Before joining the Supreme Court, Justice Samuel was a district court judge in the 18th Judicial District for 11 and a half years. During his tenure as district court judge, Justice Samuel presided over criminal, civil, domestic relations, juvenile delinquency, and dependency and neglect cases. Before his appointment to the district court bench, Justice Samuel worked as a prosecutor in the Denver District Attorney's Office for approximately 10 years. Prior to becoming a prosecutor, he worked in a civil practice for about five years at Holland and Hart LLP, and his first job out of law school was a one-year clerkship with the Honorable Robert McWilliams in the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, and with that, let's welcome Justice Spamore to the podcast. How are you doing today, Justice? Good. How are you? I am doing all right. You know, uh, hanging in there uh, in uh, pandemic twenty twenty one. Now, I guess. Yes, indeed. Uh, thank you for having me. I am delighted to be here. I'm uh, honored to be here. Frankly, well, we really appreciate it, and we're certainly honored to have you as well. Um, I'd like to start off by just learning a little bit more about you. You know, I read the, uh, you know, standard biography there a second ago, but uh, I know that you have a really amazing uh, background story. And so I'd just like to learn a little bit more about that. Uh, Why don't you start off and just tell us a little bit about, you know, where you're from and we'll kind of go from there. Okay. So I was born in El Salvador, uh, which is a small country in Central America. And in 19... um, 79, when the country was undergoing uh, some political upheaval, uh, my parents wisely decided that we should not stay. And so we literally fled in the middle of the night. And so we moved to the capital for five days to get our paperwork ready to be able to come here. Uh, We obtained uh, vacation visas for three months and then after that, uh, we drove down here. I say we, but it was actually my dad because he was the only one of the family members who could drive. It was my father, my mother, and my 11 brothers and sisters and me. So uh, we have a large family, a family of 14, including my parents. 
Wow, that is a yeah. large family. <laughs> that is, that is indeed. And so, as it turns out, we had just purchased a, a large van to try to be able to fit everyone in it when we went on vacation. So that turned out to be quite handy uh, because that's what we used to to come here. And you know, the oldest at the time was fourteen. Um, the youngest was nine months and I was 13. I'm the second oldest. And so, you know, we had kids ages 14 years old to nine months old, 12 kids in between. Um, so it was, it was quite a, a ride, you know, quite a journey. And then even just getting the visas in five days was, was quite a feat, but, uh, you know, we were able to do it and we were able to get here. So, was uh, was there ever a dull moment in your family with that many brothers and sisters? It seems like something would always be going on. You know, there was some always somebody to fight with. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so that was always fun. And I tended to be among those who was involved in, in a lot of, you know, fights, if you will. I say fights, <laughs> not necessarily physical fights, although sometimes you could get that way as it does with kids. And you got to the point where, you know, my parents started noticing that, you know, when arguments would happen or somebody would be crying, I happened to be involved more often than not. And so <laughs> they, they sort of passed a strict liability rule where they said, look, you know, from now on, you're involved. It's your fault. And we, we're not even going to ask questions. And so, yeah. And, you know, with good reason, right? I mean, I, you know, you end up involved in so many disputes or fights after a while as a parent, you go, you know, we're seeing the common denominator here, you know, all kind of things. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, it was fun. Growing up was fun. We all got along and we all still get along. And so it's a, you know, it's a great group of brothers and sisters, six boys, six girls. Oh, wow. And, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Six and six. Now, did you guys um, come directly to Colorado or did you got, where'd you guys uh, immigrate to first? Well, good question. So, you know, we lived in San Miguel and, you know, my parents were on vacation visiting my aunt, my mom's sister here in Colorado, right before we left. And so what happened is when they got back from vacation, my dad learned that um, a couple of his colleagues had been killed. And he had heard rumors that there was a sort of a hit list that the guerrillas had that they were working with, actually that the military had, and the military was always supporting um, and backing the, the wealthy families in the country. That There were 14 families that really had control of most of the country. My dad had heard rumors that there were professionals who were on a hit list and, you know, they, he was one of those people. But there were also the guerrillas on the other side who were trying to start a revolution because they were tired of being oppressed. And so, I, you know, I think we probably uh, could get it from either side. Anyway, my, when my dad got, when they got back on, uh, from their vacation, they learned that we had received a threatening phone call saying that if, if we didn't leave the country, they were going to kill my dad. And then my dad heard that a couple of his colleagues had been killed. They put two and two together and they said, go pack. We got to leave. And they got back on a Saturday. We were gone on Sunday by Sunday the next day. And like I said, we went to the Capitol to get our papers ready. And then we had to decide where do we go? We had relatives in Colorado, New York, and LA. And my parents decided that Colorado out of the three places was the best place to raise a family of well. And so that's how we ended up here. Man, what an, what an interesting story. 
what impact would you say that experience at, you know, relatively young age, but old enough to kind of understand what was going on? Has that played a role in, I guess, your, your sense of justice or kind of your, when you're acting as a judge or now a justice, is that, has that experience kind of shaped your, your worldview, I guess, if that's a good way of phrasing it? Yeah, I think it definitely has. You know, I was I was young, but I was 13. And so I remember the trip and I remember the events. You know, some of my younger siblings don't remember um, much of that. But I think the older members of the family, my older brother and I, maybe my sister who comes after me, we remember quite a bit. And I think that has shaped uh, my life and sort of my career choices. You know, my dad was a had been a judge in El Salvador, and he was a lawyer at the time we moved. And obviously, in El Salvador, there there was no respect for human rights. There was no respect for justice. You know, there was no respect for the rule of law. And that's what ended up requiring us to leave and to flee in the middle of the night. And so that has stayed with me all these years. Um, the idea that you know the United States has the rule of law, and that distinguishes us from a lot of other countries. Um, we have the rule of law and it doesn't matter, you know, whether you're wealthy or not, whether you have status or not, whether what color you are, it's justice for all and it's equal justice for all. And so that, that experience, I think, has definitely impacted me. Was it your father being a judge and kind of having that exposure to a, a legal system? Is that what inspired you to eventually go to law school and become a lawyer or Tell us a little bit about what drew you to the, the practice of law and, and what made you decide to you know, eventually go to law school and, and become a lawyer. Absolutely. That, that did influence me. I remember growing up watching my dad as a lawyer. My dad had been a judge in El Salvador. You, it's, it's, at least at the time, it was typical for people to become judges first before they become lawyers. And my dad, yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? My dad had worked in the courthouse as a student in law school and knew the ins and outs, knew how things worked. So he became a judge in a small, you know, small court, small town, but he became a judge pretty much out of law school. And he did that for a few years, three years, I think. And then, and I think in a couple of different cities, uh, small cities, and then he started practicing and he had his own private practice and his office was adjacent to our home. Uh, and so, you know, I growing up, once I got to be about 10, 11, uh, my older brother and I would go help him in the office. And so we would either type things for him or we would run errands, that kind of thing. And so I used to watch him sometimes meet with clients and I would overhear things. And I kept bugging him about wanting to go into the courtroom and watch him in action. I wanted to see him in action. I wanted to see him in trial. And he kept saying, you're too young, you know, maybe when you're older. Well, finally... Right before we left, I was 13, I think, at the time, and he allowed me to come watch him in trial. You know, I think it was a murder case. I can't remember. Anyway, I just was fascinated. You know, I, I remember uh, it was standing room only. The courtroom was packed. And I remember thinking, this is what I want to do, you know. And I remember uh, growing up, standing in front of the mirror and then putting on his suit jackets and his ties and acting like I was, you know, dressing myself to look like him, right? I, I didn't know how to tie a tie, but, you know, I was, I was doing the best I could as a kid, uh, right? Trying on his clothes and he would tell me, you know, to give him his ties back or his suit, suit jackets back. <laughs> so 
So, um, yeah, so from that early age, I, I think I, I was inspired and I really wanted to be a lawyer. And I knew that I wanted uh, someday to be a trial court lawyer. Did you know that you wanted to eventually uh, go on the other side and become a judge? Was that part of, you know, when you were in law school, was that kind of part of your long-term plan or was that something that developed a little bit more organically after you'd been practicing law for a little while? I, I think in law school, I, I did want to, uh, I did think that I would someday um, be interested in becoming a judge. Uh, and in part, it was because my dad had been a judge, but in part, I just, have always had a curiosity about the law. I've always enjoyed, um, you know, uh, the uh, the legal aspect of our profession. You know, the, the learning the law and knowing the law. And I've always found it interesting uh, to see what judges do and how judges do their work. And so, as much as I wanted to be a trial attorney and as much fun as I thought that would be, I also, in the back of my my mind, had it that someday. At some point after that, after I did that for a while, I would like to be a judge. And so that was something that in law school I was aware of and I was thinking about. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that journey from lawyer to judge. And um, so I guess let's start by focusing on a little bit about your, you know, your pre-judge uh, career. Uh, now, I know that you uh, spent, uh, I think, five or so years at Holland and Hart. Um, can you talk, talk a little bit about what that uh, big law kind of experience was like and uh, how that kind of shaped your, your, you know, your early career, if you will. First, you know, for your, uh, for any young lawyers who may be listening to this, you know, I, I never set out to go work for a big firm. You know, it's not like I thought, okay, here is how my career is going to go. I'm going to do X first and Y then Z. It didn't work out that way. And, and, you know, I think um, as a young attorney, you tend to sometimes get stressed about, am I in the right job? Should I be looking for something else? And what I would say is that things just kind of have a way of working out, you know, and that definitely was the case for me. And I would say, make the best of every job you have, as long as you're enjoying what you're doing and you're learning from it. I think, you know, there is a benefit to stay in there a while. And then once you feel like, okay, I've done this long enough, I, I don't, feel the enjoyment of it out of it anymore, or, you know, I'm looking forward to doing something different, then I think it may be time to move on. But uh, when I was in law school, I was fortunate to be a research assistant for, uh, at the time it was Professor Pringle, who had been the chief justice of the Colorado Supreme Court. He was now retired and teaching research and writing at DU Law. And his assistant was a wonderful woman who took me under her wing and push me to do things such as, hey, when I was in my second year, she would say, are you going to apply for a clerkship? And I would be like, what do you mean? Because I had no idea, you know, what she's talking about. And she, and she said, you need to apply right. for a judicial clerkship, you know. And so she kind of pushed me to do that and would tell, you know, Chief Justice Pringle, hey, uh, Judge, you're going to give Carlos a letter, right? And he, and he would say, oh, what's he applying for? And then I'd be like, you know, I was too embarrassed to ask him, right? And she's like, well, he's too embarrassed to ask you, but Carlos, why don't you go ahead and ask him right now? You know, that kind of thing. Anyway, <laughs> I ended up doing this clerkship in the 10th Circuit with Judge McWilliams, which was a wonderful experience. And he and Judge McWilliams had been in the Supreme Court together, the Colorado Supreme Court, so they knew each other. They were friends. And... And then as I was, you know, doing that, one of the 
lawyers that we used in the research and writing program to grade papers came to me and said, hey, what are your plans after your clerkship? And she too had clerked for Judge McWilliams on the 10th Circuit. And I said, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't really have any offers. I haven't really looked. And, and she said, well, you know, would you be interested in coming for an interview at Holland and Hart, which is where she was working? And I hmm. thought, you know, why not, right? I guess uh, I didn't really feel like, uh, I, I wasn't crazy about the idea of going to work for a big firm. But anyway, one thing led to another. They made me an offer in part because I wasn't really excited about doing a bunch of interviews and in part because a different friend who worked at that firm took me out to dinner to try to convince me to accept their offer. <laughs> and as it turns out, she ended up spending much more on the dinner than she was allowed. <laughs> she told me later and told me, hey, are you going to accept it? Because I might be in trouble if you don't. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And she's like, no, I guess I went you know, overboard. But they said, if you accept, it's money well spent. <laughs> and I was like, fine, you know, I'll just take it. So I took it. And that's kind of how I ended up at Holland and Hart. And, and then I ended up getting there. And as it turned out, I ended up working on cases that were super interesting. I, I worked on, uh, on a bunch of cases where we were representing uh, transfusion transmitted AIDS patients, patients who had acquired the HIV virus as a result of a blood transfusion. And so we were suing the blood bank or the hospital for negligence, for negligence in testing the blood or in screening donors. Now, this would have been you know, before there was an AIDS test. But the argument that we made was that there was a surrogate test, a different test that they could have been, they could have used that was affordable and that would have excluded 88% of the people who would have tested positive for HIV. And they should have been doing a better job of screening donors who were at high risk for, for transmitting the HIV virus. And so, or the AIDS virus. And so, you know, we, I ended up working on those cases and it was cutting edge stuff and the world's foremost experts on AIDS and got to learn a lot, you know, as an associate from watching partners who were just terrific and knew what they were doing and were incredibly skilled. And so it was a wonderful experience. So just as, you know, kind of goes to what I was saying earlier about this wasn't my plan, right, to go to Holland and Hart, but as it turned out, I think it was a great, great experience for me. And I think that that is such an important point to make, especially for our you know, law student and young lawyer listeners. And one that I think has actually been made by several of our guests on this show that um, there's all this pressure to feel like your life has to be a straight line and that you have to figure out you know, where you're gonna end up when you're in college or, or law school or even in your first year of practice. And so many of the people that we've had on this show have talked about how uh, you know, they had one plan, but then a door they, you know, never even saw being there opened. And, you know, they just kind of walked through it and found themselves in a, a wonderful opportunity. And that sounds a lot like kind of what you've described. And so, you know, if you're a law student listening to this and you're not really sure what you want to do, or you came to law school thinking you wanted to do X and you now have an opportunity to, you know, maybe try out Y. Uh, it's to it's okay. And in fact, in some ways, it may be preferred uh, to get the different experience and to, you know, really just pay attention to the opportunities that are in front of you. So I guess talking about then the next opportunity. So after, uh, you know, five or so years at Holland and Hart, uh, you actually became a district attorney uh, for the city 
uh, in um, the Denver District Court, I believe. What caused you to want to go into prosecution? And what was that experience like? So I had been at Holland at Heart almost five years. And remember that I never set out to work for a big firm. After five years or so, the AIDS cases that I mentioned started ending. And so they said, all right, well, now you got to go work on other stuff, the type of stuff that people generally work at when you're in a big firm, you know, commercial litigation. And, you know, I thought it was a good time to sort of assess where I was. And I had always thought that I wanted to be a trial lawyer. And I, I got fortunate at Holland and Hart, and I was able to do a trial in one of the AIDS cases in, in Illinois. I mean, I, I was an associate, and so I was like, you know, third chair, right? You got to do uh, something. That's a lot more than a lot of associates at big law firms. <laughs> absolutely. So, you know, there was a partner from Holland and Hart, and then there were two, the two local lawyers. And I would say I was co-counsel with the local lawyers. And so I was either, you know, co-second chair, co-third chair, however you want to look at it. And I got to do a little bit in this in, in this uh, six-week jury trial in Cook County, Illinois, right? So, I mean, how about that as a, you know, 30-year young associate, you're doing a six-week jury trial in Cook County, Illinois, you know, in Chicago, right? Pretty amazing. But then, you know, those cases started um, to, to end and, you know, the other cases were not as fun and I had been there almost five years. I, I think I realized also that if I was going to go for partnership, and I don't know whether I would have made partner or not, but if I did make partner, I probably wouldn't leave. It's hard to leave once you make partner, I think, at least at that time it was, given the money, uh, I think it would have been hard to leave and go to the public sector, uh, for example, at a DA's office. Uh, so that and, and other circumstances, you know, led me to, to uh, apply for the DA's office which is sort of where I thought I would end up when I was in law school, right? A a DA's office or a public defender's office. I had read an article that somebody uh, gave to me about Bill Ritter that was in in the docket, the publication of the docket. And he talked about, you know, how great he was and how ethical he was and what he was about at his core and how much he cared about doing the right thing, not winning, but doing the right thing. And I thought to myself, you know, there is a guy that I would love to work for, right? There is a leader that I would love to get to know better and learn from. So I made the jump. I applied for the Denver DA's office and uh, six months later, they called. They said they had a spot. They gave me an interview. And, you know, I, I, Bill Ritter offered me the job and, you know, it wasn't an easy decision. I mean, I took, I took a huge pay cut. I think I was making almost 80,000 at Holland and Hart. And I started at, you know, 43,000, I think, at the Denver DA's office. And, you know, I still remember when Bill Ritter made me the offer, you know, I, I asked him if I could think about it. And he's looking at me like, you apply for this job, right? Yeah. What? <laughs> and I said, well, can I have, you know, and he said, well, you can have overnight, you know, because I've got a couple of other people who are interested. He gave me till five o'clock the next day. I'm sitting in my office at about three o'clock the next day, my phone rings. It's Bill Ritter. <laughs> And I was like startled, right? Because I said, hey, I thought you said five. And he goes, yeah, well, he says, I need to know now. So <laughs> what it be? And, and then I'm sitting there going like, ah, oh, geez, you know, which way do I go? And I said, ah, you know what? What the heck? I'll take it. And, and he was like, well, I usually like to hear a little more enthusiasm than that, but I'll take it, you know? And so, 
And it was a great, you know what? It ended up being a great decision. It was scary, right? To go from making, you know, that much money and also from, you know, from a place that I really enjoyed being at and going to a new place and you don't know whether you're going to like it or not, that kind of, kind of thing. But in retrospect, it ended up being a great, great decision. And that's nothing, you know, that's not saying anything negative about Holland and Hart. I loved my experience at Holland and Hart. It was just something different. And being a, a DA allowed me to be in the courtroom all the time. Right. And to this day, I mean, there's no greater experience if you want to be a trial lawyer than to be a DA or a public defender. A- absolutely. I mean, no and, world in private practice where you can get that amount of experience. Absolutely. And, and you know that um, you've been out now a while. So, you know, you know that not only that, but I think I really think that it, it really helps you. Uh, it helps prepare you to be a judge. If you're interested in being a judge, I really would encourage people to go to the DA's office or the public defender's office and do that for a while, at least, because you get to be comfortable in the courtroom. And as a judge, there's nothing better than feeling comfortable in the courtroom. And when I became a judge, I had been a DA now for 10 years and I was comfortable in the, in the courtroom. This was sort of my second home, right? Right. Now I was sitting behind the bench instead of being on the other side of the, the uh, behind the podium on the other side. But still, you know, there was a comfort level that went along with being a judge that I had as a result of having been a DA. Well, that's actually a great segue into discussing your experience as a trial court judge. Uh, now, you were out in the 18th uh, Judicial District, which if you guys don't know, listing is uh, Arapahoe, Douglas, and, and Ebert County. Is that Elbert County? Elbert and Lincoln. Elbert. So it's four and counties, Lincoln. yes. Four counties. And I actually yeah. think they're splitting it up soon. If I, They if are. I, so we'll uh, get a little bit of a reorganization, but... I'd like to start off with uh, uh, a question that I was kind of curious about. What was your favorite part about being a trial court judge? My favorite part about being a trial court judge was jury trials. Uh, I I really love doing jury trials and dealing with the jury specifically, working with jurors. I, I just was fascinated by what jurors had to say, you know, and I would always take the time after trial to go in the jury room and talk to them and thank them. And then we start talking about, you know, what made a difference for you? What did you think about this argument? What did you think about the lawyers? What did you think about, you know, the the whole experience? That's a little bit of a, you know, sort of a look behind the curtain, if you will, to, to hear from everyday people about kind of what their experience was like and how that compares to their expectations as they came into the courtroom. Almost to a person, they would tell me that, their experience was nothing like what they had expected, nothing like what they had seen on TV or in the movies. It was very different. But by and large, I would say nine, nine out of every 10 jurors were uh, seemed to be grateful that they had gone through the experience. And they would tell me that. And they would say, you know, this isn't easy. And I, when I got here, I was really annoyed because I'm busy. I have other things I, I, I could be doing. And yet here I was, and we had to wait that first day until we got called up into the courtroom and, and that kind of thing. And that was annoying. And I was a little frustrated. And I was trying to get out of here. But now that I've gone through it, you know, I'm glad that I learned. This was a, a, an educational experience. 
And they would say, and it was really rewarding. It was rewarding to learn how the system works. And so, you know, that made my day, obviously, to hear that. And, and almost everybody seemed to feel that way. That's fascinating that that's been your experience. That's been my experience as, as well. I've, I think, tried now 15 or 16 cases to verdict, and I've had a chance to speak to maybe eight or nine different juries. And I always tell them now in voir dire when it's starting that, um, you know, most of you are probably not happy to be here right now, but for those, and those of you who don't make the jury probably will leave being like, that wasn't that great of an experience. But for those of you who actually get on the jury, I can almost all but guarantee that at the end, you will have found it very rewarding, very powerful. And, you know, other than maybe running for office or serving in the military, in my view, it's probably the, you know, best way that a person can contribute, you know, civically. Uh, to their, you know, community and to their uh, country um, is to serve on the, the jury system, you know, and, and not every country is lucky enough to have a well-functioning judicial system and to have, um, you know, members of the community rendering kind of judgment on, on, on important cases and issues. And, and jurors, in my experience, and I bet in yours too, really take it seriously. You know, they, they um, by and large, they really invest, you know, uh, into the process and they really try to do their best. They really take it seriously. And I, I very much appreciate that. Yeah, I don't always agree with them, but they certainly, uh, they, I do agree. I do think that the overwhelming majority of them try really hard um, to do the right thing. And it's always fascinating hearing, you know, what persuaded them or why they did what they did and whether it's a jury or even a focus group. You know, we do a lot of focus groups for civil trials and just when I think like, all right, we're going to make this argument and it's going to make the jury think X, we'll get in a focus group and we'll make it and I will get, you know, A, B, C, Y, Z, and not a single person will think X. And I'll be like, well, uh, that, that didn't exactly work how I thought it would. I guess the flip side question of that, was there anything about being a judge that you uh, didn't really like or a part of your job that you didn't necessarily look forward to? Well, there are some things that are hard. You know, sentencing is harder than it looks. I remember realizing that when I did my first few sentences as a judge, because I had been a DA for 10 years. And so I had done sentencing hearings. And, you know, what I learned is it's a lot easier to stand at the podium and ask, to, ask a judge to sentence somebody to prison than it is as a judge to actually sentence someone to prison. It, that's not an easy thing. You know, it's something that, uh, that, that that's a challenge, right? You, you understand that sentencing decisions are, are difficult. You understand the impact those decisions have on people's lives. And whether it's a defendant or a victim, you know, they're not always going to agree with your sentence. And, and you know, when it comes to sentencing, there's not one, one particular sentence that's the right answer. And Right. For some cases, I spent days or weeks thinking about what was the appropriate sentence. I don't know that I arrived at the appropriate one, but I, you know, I gave it enough thought and, and uh, maybe consulted with, with, with folks enough to, to try to, and read all the reports and, all, and the file and, and try to consider all the information that was available to try to make the best decision I could. So, but, but I would say that the thing that I probably liked the least was Docket day could be tough. I, I, you know, initially enjoyed having docket day just because it was new. But after you do it for a while and 
those dockets get so huge that were they were very large. <laughs> yeah, that we had, you know, 70 cases, 60, 70 cases. And that would mean that I, I would be on the bench from 8.30 till sometimes six o'clock. You know, we would take breaks here and there in the morning, a little break, in the afternoon, a little break, maybe a half hour for lunch. But that's brutal, you know, when you're having to be on the bench for eight or nine hours and making decisions throughout the day. And granted, during docket day, I, I tended not to schedule sentencings or things like that, just because I was aware that whether you uh, like it or not, there's a fatigue that sets in. And right, right. I, I, did, I didn't want to be making those types of difficult decisions under those circumstances, but, uh, but still, you're moving through cases fairly quickly. You're handling, you know, um, advisements. You're doing pleas. A lot of it is repeating sort of the same thing. And so that, that part of it can be really, can get really uh, tedious and, and difficult. I'd like to talk a little bit uh, briefly about uh, what has to be probably your highest profile uh, case when you were on the bench. Uh, for those listeners who do not know, uh, Judge Samor at the time, now Justice Samor, was uh, presided over the James Holmes uh, Aurora uh, movie theater shooting uh, case. I guess my first question is, is what was it like being in such a high profile position and in a case like that? Did you feel, I mean, I'm sure it felt different, but I mean, did you feel extra pressure because of, you know, the media attention, you know, nationwide media attention on it? Was it, I guess, more emotionally or physically or mentally taxing than your, your average, you know, other, uh, you know, murder case or other big case, if you will? I would say yes. It, I think it's natural that you're going to feel the extra pressure. And, you know, what I, I try to, I try to treat the case as much as I could as any other criminal case. Uh, understanding, however, that there were things that we were not going to be able to do the same way we did in other cases, obviously. And, and so the trick was, you know, trying to identify those things and trying to handle those things in a way that, that I thought would not affect the, the rights of the parties and at the same time would allow the public to have access. And that was important to me. This was a case that the public was obviously interested in. I know that the initial reaction or gut reaction that judges sometimes tend to have when it's a uh, high profile case is to try to push the public away, push the media away, try to shut them out. And I, I took the opposite approach and I, I felt like, you know, the public and the media are generally speaking not involved, not, not interested in what we do. And then the few times when they are interested, it seems to me to be counterintuitive for us to push them away and say, get out of here, let us do our job, we'll let you know how it turns out. Additionally, I think the public's trust in our system is critical to whether our system survives or not. If the public doesn't trust our system of justice, then I think the system fails. Uh, our system can only succeed if the public has confidence in it. And generally speaking, the public doesn't have confidence in things that it doesn't see, right? If you do right. things behind closed doors and then you just let the public know this is how it turned out, trust us, it, you know, the public doesn't necessarily trust that kind of stuff. And so I thought it was important to try to provide access as much as I could. But yeah, definitely it was difficult, not only because of the stakes, you know, obviously 
you had the defendant who was facing a death death sentence. Right. You had hundreds of victims or thousands of victims who wanted justice and were entitled to justice. Both sides were entitled to justice, obviously. And so, you know, the stakes are obviously very high, but additionally, you've got all this pressure because everything you do, everything you say, everything you write is being uh, scrutinized and reported on. And, you know, so that adds a, an extra level of pressure, whether you, you like it or not. I just think, I, I think it's just, you know, natural. How did the selection process um, work? I'm assuming that when that case was going on, that that was your only focus or were you still working on other matters? And did it just happen to be, uh, I guess, kind of randomly assigned to your courtroom like any other case? Or was there a discussion among the judges, um, you know, who who wants to handle this one or who should handle this one? That's a really good question. It, it didn't come, it wasn't assigned to my courtroom. Um, and actually when the case happened and it, when it was first, when it was initially filed, the chief judge, who at the time was Chief Judge Sylvester, took it over. So he presided over it and he had it um, for eight months. But as time went on, he came to me and said, you know, I think it was at about five or six months after he'd had it. He said, listen, the DA is indicating that he may seek the death penalty in this case. If the DA decides to seek the death penalty, I'm going to get off the case because I don't think I can do that preside over the case, a death penalty case, and at the same time be chief judge of the district. So I'm going to have to, if that happens, I'm going to have to assign it to someone. You know, he told me that I was one of three people that he had in mind that he felt comfortable assigning it to. So we had several discussions along those lines. You know, initially he wanted me to think about it, uh, right. whether I would be willing to do it. I thought about it. Uh, I, I think that he asked me first before he went to the other two folks, but he made it clear that, look, if you're not comfortable, I completely understand. If you'd rather not do it, I've got a couple of other people in mind and I can ask one of them and I'm pretty sure one of them will, will take it. And I thought about it and after thinking about it, I told them that, um, you know, it was um, a case that, that we had to do as the judicial branch, right? And I just didn't think it was fair to say, yeah, you know what, I don't like that case. And so I said, if you are, you know, in think you want to assign it to me, I will take it. And, and I think I can handle it. And so, you know, we sort of uh, had a couple of, a few conversations along those lines. And then what happened is uh, the DA was set to announce whether he was going to seek the death penalty on a Monday, April 1st. Uh, and so the Thursday before that, yeah, it was April Fool's Day. I know, like a rough day. <laughs> I know. The Thursday before that, he comes to me and he says, does the chief judge and, and, you know, Sylvester. And he says, he brings me like these huge files, right? And he says, here, he says, you know, just in case the DA announces death penalty on Monday during our hearing, why don't you come up to speed over the weekend just in case? And I'm like, oh, okay. Just a little light reading for the yeah. next few days, right? Right. So, yeah. So between Thursday and Sunday, you know, I spent almost every minute I could trying to read everything I could. This case had been going on, on now for eight months, right? And then that Sunday, you know, I don't know yet whether he's going to assign the case to me or not. It all depends on whether the DA announces the death, you know, that he wants to seek the death penalty or not. 
And so do I tell my family about this or do I not say anything, you know? And so I decided that Sunday was Easter. So at dinner time, I said, oh, you know, I sort of have something I want to talk to everybody about. So, you know, we, you know, my family is large, right? 11 brothers and sisters, my parents, you can imagine significant others, kids, you know, we've got like 40, 50 people, 50 people or so gather. And I said, you know, this may be happening tomorrow. It's not the greatest April Fool's joke. If you hear my name out there, I haven't pulled like the greatest April Fool's joke ever, right? It's right. my name out there in the, in the media that, you know, I've been assigned this case. It's actually <laughs> true. <laughs> this wow. may happen. I wanted to give everybody a head start, you know, so that they could take whatever precautions they needed to. And you know, I told them to be careful. Don't talk to, you know, if anybody approaches you about the case, don't talk to them about the case, you know, that kind of thing. Make sure that, you know, I don't know, some, you know, obviously we have with some siblings, I have the same last name, the, the ones who, you know, are not, are not married, especially, or are married and haven't changed their last name, right? So right. I wanted to, just for security reasons, wanted to give them a heads up. And so then what happens on that Monday is, you know, the chief judge, Sylvester, decided he would start the hearing. And he tells me, once I've done the hearing, he says, I'll come out during the break and tell you which way this is going, and then we'll go from there. So apparently, the way it happens, because I read the transcript later, he takes the bench, he asks the DA, what have you decided to do? The DA says, I'm going to seek the death penalty, uh, essentially. Right. And then Chief Judge Sylvester said, well, in that case, I'm going to take a break, I'm going to issue a couple of administrative orders, and then we'll proceed after that. And then, of course, all the members of the media, you know, and everybody's like, what? What is what administrative orders he's talking about, right? And nobody, everybody's confused. Right. So he gets off the bench. He goes and signs an administrative order that says, I am assigning this case to Judge Carlos Samor. And then he has his staff go distribute the orders to the media and to the parties. And so you can imagine, right, everybody, and right. then he comes to my office and he says, okay, it's yours. Good luck. And, yeah, good <laughs> luck. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, he announced, the DA announced he's seeking the death penalty. And so he got off the bench, this Sylvester, and he never, the parties never saw him again. Next thing they, they know after the break, I come out. And so everybody's looking at me like, who's this guy? <laughs> what just happened? You know, we, we got a new judge. <laughs> so, oh. and I, I, yeah, that was my first day. So. Wow. Wow. What a fascinating story. We could probably have done a whole episode just on right. that experience. Um, with the, the short amount of time we have left, I do want to talk a little bit about your experience on the Colorado Supreme Court. Um, how does your work uh, differ kind of in the day to day from being a trial court judge to a, a Supreme Court justice? Was it kind of a radical shift or is there a, you know, at least some parallels? I would say there are some parallels in part because, you know, when I was at the, at the end of my tenure on the district court bench, I was handling um, a, a lot of uh, high profile cases. Some of the high profile cases, because by then I was the chief judge of the district. I became the chief judge of the district uh, as I was presiding over the Aurora Theater shooting trial. Uh, Sylvester retired and then, you know, and, and I was one of the four people who put in for chief judge and I, uh, the Chief Justice of the Colorado Supreme Court at the time, Chief Justice Nancy Rice, mm -hmm. selected me. So I ended up being the, the, the Chief Judge 
And, and so as a result of that, then, because I was chief judge and had a lot of administrative responsibilities, when I became chief judge, the only case assigned to me was the Aurora Theater shooting case. Uh, but even after we did that trial and we finished that trial, as chief judge, you tend not to have a full docket. That's just sort of, you know, you can't do a full docket. And so uh, because we had a pretty inexperienced bench at the time, the big cases tended to go come to me. I would, I would take the big cases, the high profile cases, right. and preside over those cases, uh, at least until our bench became more experienced. And so because of that, I was sort of used to doing a lot of uh, orders in writing, a lot of office work. You know, I wasn't doing the typical trial court judge stuff where you're doing docket every day. Right. So to some extent that ended up uh, being a good transition for me to go from the district court to the Supreme Court. But, you know, even, uh, even with that, obviously there are some differences, you know, at the trial court level, you're, you're on, you know, you take the bench almost every day. You are interacting with people almost every day. And the Supreme Court, we have oral argument, but oral argument is twice a month, you know, two days a month. So most of what we do here is work in the office. You know, it's, it's and then, you know, we obviously do a lot of committee work and we get out into the community a lot and attend events and things like that and do CLEs and things like that. But most of the work we do is in chambers and it's a lot of reading, a lot of research, a lot of writing. And so, like I said, uh, um, I'm grateful that as I was ending my tenure in the district court, I was doing a lot of those things at that time too, which is kind of why I figured that, you know, I, I, would, I would like to, to be in, in an appellate court. I thought that I would enjoy it uh, because that kind of work was, was really enjoyable. Um, one, so I guess one thing that I would like to end on, and I, and I think that this is really important for our, um, you know, young lawyer and law student listeners, so I know that you talked about one thing that was really helpful for your kind of, uh, you know, uh, move to the bench. And I'm sure it also applies uh, as a justice was, was that a trial courtroom experience you got as a DA. What other things, if, you know, you're a law student or, or even a young lawyer or even an older lawyer, and you're thinking, you know, I, I may want to become a judge one day, what kind of things should those individuals be doing um, in addition to, you know, either working at the DA's office or PD's office and getting that trial experience? The other thing that I would point to uh, would be the many mentors I have had along the way that I have, I've been, I've been really fortunate, you know, and so I would say to the extent that you can, uh, that you have people who are willing to spend time with you and to share their experiences with you and sort of take you under their wing or help you in any way, you got to foster those relationships those are really significant, I think. And, you know, and I think people, there are a lot of people out there who are willing to help you and are willing to work with you. And, you know, I, I would say reach out, right? And talk to people. How do you like what you're doing? You know, I, I myself enjoy uh, getting an email or a phone call from a young lawyer who wants to talk about, hey, you know, if I'm interested in doing X, what do you think? How do you think, you know, I get there, especially people who want to be on the bench someday. I love, you know, meeting with them and talking to them about different ideas and maybe things that they should be doing. Uh, so I would say get out there, make sure that you get, you know, people, allow people to get to know you. Uh, it's not enough just to do good work. Obviously, you want to do good work. But if you just do good work and you stay in your office all the time and you never get out and, you know, never meet people or never out there, 
I think you're gonna uh, make it more difficult for yourself. Uh, so I would say, you know, make sure you go attend, you know, some of the bar events that there are. So just people get to know who you are, right? And and I would say to the extent that you are in an office where somebody is sort of a mentor to you or somebody, you know, sort of takes an interest in your career, man, hold on to that because it's huge. I think those are the kinds of things that really help you. I am so happy that you said that. Uh, anyone who has listened to literally almost every episode that we have ever done of this podcast has heard me talk about how important mentorship is to the point that they're probably like, oh, there goes Kevin just beating this dead horse again. <laughs> but there you guys heard it. Our first Colorado Supreme Court justice on the show is stressing to you how important it is. And so I, I can't, I just can't say it enough that mentorship is one of, if not the most important things you can do as a young lawyer. Uh, there's no way I would have been able to open up a firm, you know, so soon out of law school without dozens of mentors and people who were willing to take my phone call. And then we always end the show by being like, are you willing to have people contact you if they're seeking a mentor or want to ask you questions? And you beat me to it. So if you're listening to this, guys, uh, and you want to talk to Justice Samore, um, Samore, uh, <laughs> fun, um, uh, go ahead and uh, shoot him an email. His, his, his email and stuff, everything is online at the, the Supreme Court website. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Uh, such a fascinating story and a fascinating career. And uh, I really, really appreciate it. And I know that our listeners uh, will hopefully have learned a lot today. So thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and weekend. It's my pleasure, Kevin, and it's an honor to do it. And yes, I hope uh, young lawyers or law students out there listening, if uh, anyone is interested, I'd be happy to meet with them, happy to talk to them. And after the pandemic, I'd be happy to do it in person, obviously. I, you know, it's one of the, my favorite things about this job is that I get to, you know, I get these phone calls or I get, I get people who want to talk to me about, hey, how did you get there? And, you know, can we talk about how maybe I can get there? What can I be doing better? What can I be doing differently? I love that. To the extent I can pass that on, not only do I feel like it's my duty now to do it, but it's a joy to do it. And so uh, by all means, uh, people should feel free to come. Well, it's been an honor and a privilege, Your Honor. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin. Get legal with it.